It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. We've been talking about cars a lot lately and how expensive they are, how hard they are to get. I want to address something else, the quality of the cars. And later, would you base your investment advice on someone you follow on social media? That's really in right now. So vehicles are costing the most they ever have. And it's because the shortage of new vehicles for sale because of the chip shortage has allowed automakers and dealers to both pump up their profit margins and in turn, you to have to pay more money. The average vehicle in the United States, what they call drive out, is $40,000 now. That is Huge, huge money. So if you're going to lay out big money, you want it to be really, really reliable. Now, I want to tell you, initial vehicle quality to me is not as important as three years out. But I'm making an exception this year, this time, because of how high the stakes are right now If you buy a vehicle at full retail plus right now that's a new year model, you know, a new model, and then later you're like, I hate this thing and you want to dump it, market conditions are going to change and you might turn around and have to sell something at a bad price when you decide you hate it. So I thought it would be good to talk about initial quality. According to J.D. Power, what brands are the most reliable and what are the least reliable? First things first, most of the very reliable vehicles on initial quality are mainstream brands, not luxury brands. There's a reason for that. Luxury brands tend to have lower production runs and particularly the European ones allow enormous customization. So with that low production volume, and the mass customization where you can change so many different things, you can end up with a vehicle that is less reliable, particularly initially. Maybe they work on those bugs and it proves okay over time, but initially you're going to get to know the people at the service center more often with a luxury brand than a mainstream market one. According to J.D. Power, though, the most reliable brand right now for initial quality for a brand new vehicle is the Ram. And uh, Dodge Ram is at the top of the heap. There is, right behind them, one luxury brand that has proven to be reliable not just on initial vehicle quality, but on long-term ownership cycles, and that's Lexus, has proven to be very reliable and shows near the very top behind Dodge Ram in initial quality, followed by Mitsubishi, a brand you never hear anything about in the United States because they're such a low-volume seller in the United States, Nissan, Kia, Genesis, and Hyundai, which is the Genesis is Hyundai's premium brand, Jeep and Chevrolet. Those are the top most reliable vehicles. 
What's the least reliable brand you can buy right now? This is really ironic because at the top of the heap, we had Dodge Ram. At the bottom of the heap, we have Chrysler, same parent company, followed by Audi and Tesla. Um, As far as the other ones that are showing bad results, initial vehicle quality, Volkswagen, Volvo, Alfa Romeo, Land Rover, Acura, and Mercedes. Everybody else kind of in the middle between those two extremes. But as a general rule, when I look through this list, and it's been true historically, buying a mainstream vehicle is going to get you typically the best quality. It's the same thing with kitchen appliances. I've talked about this before, that buying a mid-market refrigerator freezer, mid-market washer dryer, a mid-market dishwasher, that those appliances in a home tend to be much more reliable when they're the high-volume mainstream ones versus ones at the very high lux end that when you walk into an appliance section of a discounter or you walk into an appliance store, what are they all featuring? They're featuring these ultra, ultra fancy appliances. And let me tell you, those things come with ultra fancy bills as they have to be repaired often chronically over an ownership cycle. Krista? This question is from Tom in California. Here's my dilemma. I have a 2008 Toyota Camry with 185,000 miles that needs about $3,000 worth of work, probably more than the car is worth. I think it's time to buy a new car, since this could be a safety issue, but late model used cars now cost as much as new cars used to cost. New cars are also more costly, hard to come by, and selection is limited. I may have to settle for a color or equipment I don't really want. Should I repair my existing car, which I know you usually would not recommend, and wait for prices to drop and availability and selection to improve, or pay the higher price for a new or used car, which I may not really want, but that's still available? Tom, you're right. This is a dilemma because I looked up the value of your 2008 Camry, and it's right in the ballpark of what these repairs would cost. So... I'm going to say this. I'm shallow breathing saying it. Pay to repair the Camry. If you really can get it completely up to date for three grand, you have very low risk going ahead and repairing. As I said minutes ago, the average cost of a new vehicle in the United States is 40 grand. I think the average cost of a used vehicle right now is 17, if I remember right. If you put 3000 into the Camry and you even got another six months out of it, you're fine because the Camry would still have residual value selling it at the end of that time period. And you're giving time for the market to get more equilibrium. You know, the government support for the economy has been peeling away layer by layer with all the pandemic relief funds of all types. And it's more likely than not that the economy is going to go into a lower gear. And so the fever pitch in the vehicle market 
added in with the shortages available, I think you're going to see some price pressures easing in the car market if you buy yourself some time. So I would, shockingly, I know it's surprising, I would buy that time. Camille in California writes, I'm a new listener and I'm so pleased to have found your show, not only for the great advice, but for the manner in which you engage with your critics. It takes courage and humility to not just listen to your critics, but empathize with their point of view. I also have a question. We have three children ages 11 to 16. I want them to experience international travel as young people, so hopefully they continue big trips their whole lives. My goal was to take them to Italy by 2022, before my oldest son's senior year of high school. Can you talk about the potential pitfalls of planning a trip to Europe in COVID times? My husband and I are vaccinated. The kids aren't yet. Is there a European country that would be a better bet than others right now? I love that you're asking me this question because it is a dilemma right now because the fares to Europe from all around the United States are at or near historic lows. The airlines trying to get whatever revenue they can have been publishing fares and spot sales from the U.S. to various destinations in Europe in the twos to fours round trip, 200 and something round trip to 400 and something round trip to a bunch of destinations. The rules for Americans entering Europe continue to change and they change country by country on what testing is required, when the testing is required, and whether people that are unvaxxed are allowed to go. A bunch of countries in Europe now no longer will allow you to travel to them except for a family death emergency um, if you're not vaxxed. And even if you are vaxxed, there will be testing requirements usually and a country-specific form you have to fill out. The important thing is to stay up to date on the rules. And when you're looking at going to Italy sometime in 22, if you can buy one of these ultra cheap fares, I think it's worth the risk to do that, to, to go ahead and buy those tickets. And if your kids can get vaccinated, your, your oldest son obviously is old enough to get vaccinated. If your kids overall are an age they can get vaccinated, you eliminate a lot of the concerns for being able to travel to Europe if they are, in fact, vaccinated. And another travel question from Melinda in Georgia. My family of five are going on a cruise in Europe June 2nd through 18th of 2022. We want to buy travel insurance that will cover our cruise from Barcelona to Rome. I would like to cover trip cancellation for any reason, acts of terrorism, COVID cancellation, etc., what would you consider to be the most comprehensive insurance carrier to provide these types of coverage? Melinda, this is a wonderful question. And cancel for any reason insurance has just skyrocketed in popularity. Because it what it does is it covers 50 to 75% of the cost of a trip where you just say, ah, oh, well, I'm not going to go. You don't have to give a reason other than, well, you know, the sun came up today. I don't want to do it. They don't give you back 100% on cancel for any reason insurance because of what's known as moral hazard. If you have a, a share in the loss, then they realize you probably have a pretty good reason that you would walk away from 25 to 50% of the money you've paid. As to where to buy it, there are websites that do comparison shopping for trip insurance policies. 
the one that's the biggest is insuremytrip.com, but there are others as well. And so when you look at a policy, it will give you the premium for the coverage you're buying for your family of five going. And most of the policies will set a premium per person based on their age. And then you will be offered an option to add cancel for any reason coverage. And that, again, will be 50 to 75%. Some of the policies now provide uh, 50% cancel for any reason just included in the premium. But most often you will pay for that coverage. But again, 25% or more of the cost of that trip will come out of your pocket. So what's the best one to buy? The policies all have complaints about them, that it's difficult a lot of times to deal with the claims administrator to get the refund that you're expecting or feel you deserve for the trip based on the policy you bought and the premium you paid. So because this is something with an area where when the chips are down, people complain, seems like no matter who they buy a policy from, I would buy it from whoever offers the coverage that is at the lowest premium for the coverage that you most want. In your case, it seems like uh, with your concern, Melinda, you should probably buy policy that gives you the 75% where you eat a quarter of the trip and they eat three quarters. Hey, you know something? I got a great stock tip for you. Just check out my social media accounts. Really, this thing's great. It's going to go to a zillion. Just kidding. It's not my way. (laughs) But do you know there are more and more people that are buying based on the whisper? But the whisper moves at the speed of light on social media and other electronic platforms. I want to talk about what you need to be aware of and your questions straight ahead. I am so excited that so many people now get it that the only way to build long-term financial security is to live on less than what you make and invest that money. Because investing is key to you building financial security. Because in a capitalist system, wealth ultimately flows to owners. And when you own stocks or mutual funds or index funds or their modern cousin exchange-traded funds, that stands in as you owning little teeny pieces, of, particularly in index funds or ETFs, of hundreds or thousands of companies. And that is the key ticket over time to long-term financial security. It's not the only ticket. There are so many people who have done really well owning real estate, owning even individual properties that you rent out. I used to have a number of rental properties, and I reached a point in my life where I was like, you know what, this is more work than I want to do. And I took advantage of the spike in, in values, and I'm out of the rental home business rental property business. But the point is, for most people, it's going to be taking your money and investing it. 
And there's so much interest in this when you look at particularly people under 35 who were never really historically into investing. That tended to be something people did later. It's now very common that people even from teenage years forward are doing this. I've talked about how with Fidelity, minor children are now allowed to have investment accounts that they can actually make the investment decisions on. And there are, there are a whole different variety of choices available to do investing. And with that comes advice coming from everywhere. And this is great and terrible at the same time because there's a lot of people touting investments on social media or other electronic outlets and they all have a point of view and many are just trying to do the best job they can to give guidance and advice but others may be well they may be pitching something they have a financial interest in or they may have a very narrow perspective and believe very much in a very very narrow slice of the market here's my thing about this i am a total advocate of what's known as core investing. Core investing is where you start with building a portfolio that is ultra-wide. It could be as simple as one fund, a total stock market index fund, or it could be in retirement accounts, a targeted retirement fund geared towards the date you're going to retire, that you build a base of money wide. And then if you get really hopped up about who knows what, buying uh, what are known as meme stocks or whatever. If it's money that is at the margins, that's fine. But please be careful taking your money into a narrow number of things for very short periods of time because that is not a secure way to invest for long-term financial security. I shared with you months ago how my son was doing this thing at school. There was an investment um, simulation exercise. They weren't using real money, but they all had accounts that had values to them. And to him, a long-term investment was owning something for a week. He was 15 at the time. A week is a long time at 15 years old. But there are a lot of people that are new to investing who are rapid fire buying and selling and really believe that's how they're going to make money. And there are the rare number of people who've actually quit their regular job just to do rapid fire buying and selling. And that is not my game. That's not what I'm about. Because what I want for you is steady as you go. I want you to build wealth one pay period at a time, one month at a time, in widely diversified investments to build long-term financial security because that, to me, is the goal. So you can get into the hype and excitement, and that's your choice. It's your money. But I encourage you, always treat that as a sideshow. The main event should be the core of money that you're creating that long-term, hopefully, wealth. Krista? 
Alex in Colorado wrote in, we recently purchased a smart garage door opener where we can open and close our garage door remotely with our cell phone. There is even an option to link it to your Amazon account where delivery drivers will place packages inside the garage. Is this safe in general? Even if we don't link our Amazon account, it seems like we could be opening our house to possible theft. Yeah, and these you can add these devices now often to a garage door for like $39 where you can turn your garage door from a dumb one to a smart one and open it remotely for a, a work pers- workman, worker coming to your house. You can open, Amazon has looked at every possible way to get people to give them access to open the house so they can leave packages. It was a thing Amazon wanted at one point for people to give them access into the house itself or into somebody's apartment itself because of all the um, porch pirates stealing packages. But people weren't so keen on letting Amazon into the house, and then they're about the garage. So if you're going to give access to your garage, you are right, Alex. There is the problem potentially of hackers. Most people who enter their house and leave their house every day through the garage, never lock the door from the garage to the house itself. Once somebody's in the garage, they have access to the house. In my opinion, if you're going to give people access with a smart garage door, then it's also smart that you go that extra step and always lock the door into the house itself from the garage. Gary in Wisconsin writes, I received an email from Best Buy announcing they are changing their Geek Squad total tech plan. It will cost four times as much. Are there other good tech support plans at the $50 price? It seems like the added features would not be of value to us. So Best Buy has continually experimented with various pricing points for tech support and you know their new price is actually $200 a year for tech support and there are not alternatives that I'm aware of that do the kind of things that Best Buy does with their Geek Squad what they call total tech plan I would tell you unless you're constantly needing tech help you don't subscribe to anything and you pay on a per use basis because paying the 200 bucks just doesn't seem like a deal to me at all. And from Miguel in New York, I'm a member of USAA having served. I thought it was time for my children to have their own youth spending and savings account with USAA. My daughter is 15 and my son is 12. Both will soon have access to their debit cards. I had my son review YouTube videos and also told him not to spend on Fortnite online. Any advice on how to make this better for them both? Well, I love the USAA spending and savings account. I particularly like the savings account side (laughs) rather than the spending side. The debit card scares me as it always has. And I'm always worried about uh, youth thinking that with the card, it becomes too easy to spend money, and they think of whatever money they have as money to be spent rather than money to be saved. And so I, the advice that I have with kids is that that they need to know that of the money that goes in, 
half because kids don't have a lot of things they have to spend on, money on that whatever money goes in half goes into savings half goes into spending and if you can get a 12 year old and a 15 year old to think that way that of the money that's income half is spent half is saved it's the most important thing i can think of for long-term financial security for your kids if they have that ingrained in their heads as teenagers that you live on less than what you make it changes their future now once they have normal responsibilities saving half of what they make would be really really difficult but if the idea of living on less than what they make is what they take away from the experience with the usaa spending and savings account i think it's great And I want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Clark Howard Show. I really appreciate having you here. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter at clark.com.